Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. To mark International Women's Day, we're dedicating all seven days this week to examining the challenges and triumphs of women around the world through art, sport, literature, and politics. We're joined today by former US 5,000 meter champion, Lauren Fleshman, to speak about the vital need for the world of sports to be reimagined for women. Equality is no longer enough, she says. We need equity. Following her own journey, Lauren explores the damaging mental and physical effects of young women being trained in line with the physiological development of a male body. She exposes the financial realities of being a professional female athlete, and she re-examines what it means to be a successful athlete. Our host for this conversation is Sophie Penny, sports journalist for Reuters and The Athletic. Here's Sophie with more. Some might say that gender equality in sports has progressed leaps and bounds in the past few decades, but it's still glaringly obvious that female athletes are not elevated or represented in the same way as their male counterparts. But it's not just equality we need to talk about, it's equity. How does a woman fare in a world run predominantly by men, a world designed to produce male success? Research and testimonies from a number of prominent female athletes show that from a young age, their training is often in line with the physiological development of a boy's body. This can have short and long-term damaging effects on the body and the mind. Eating disorders, fatigue, osteoporosis, delayed periods, and sometimes fertility issues, these are just a few of the hurdles girls and young women around the world are facing in their athletic training to this day. And if you get through that as a female athlete, the world of professional sport is no more forgiving. I'm joined today by Lauren Fleshman, one of the most accomplished American distance runners in history. Her new book, Good for a Girl, Life Running in a Man's World, which is now a New York Times bestseller, looks at the problems within the system of professional sport and questions how we can change this for the generation of girls and female athletes to come. Lauren, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. Let's start off. If you could tell me, why did it feel so important for you to write this book? There's always a flood of stories that come out about abuse in sport for women, pay inequality, discrepancies in the sporting experience. It's just like it trickles out, um, inequality in pay, all these things. And they're underneath it all, in my 30 years in sport, there is a theme that I feel just isn't really addressed. And that is the fact that the female body is different and our embodied experiences of moving through sport in a world that doesn't acknowledge those differences 
is setting us up for all of these inequitable and unequal experiences. So uh, in order to get to that last little bit of coaching equity or pay equity or whatever, we need to address the fundamental issues at play starting from when puberty begins around age 12. Definitely. And I think it's it's a very important book. I think it gives women the confidence and the facts to say that they're not the problem. It's the, the system that's the problem. So if we take it back to the beginning of the book, you mentioned the moment when as a young girl, you realized you weren't the fastest anymore. Can you tell us more about that realization? Yeah, well, I grew up really a tomboy and in the 90s, which was like the girl power revolution, where girls can do anything boys can do. Sexism was a thing, but it's over now and the world is yours, right? Title IX was well on its way in the US, so sports opportunities were abundant. And I really believed everything I was told. I believed I could do anything. I believed I could be the best at anything. And for a while, I was in sport. I just, I, I could win any, any game against anybody um, and outrun any boy. And then in, near the end of eighth grade, which is the end of our middle school years, um, this boy Rocky, one week in the weekly mile, just destroyed me out of nowhere after I'd beat him over and over again. And I was puzzled. And I went home and asked my dad, like, what the heck? Because he was my biggest cheerer on. He was the one that was like, you can be the best at anything. And he said, oh, you know, Rocky hit puberty. That's what's going on here. And I was like, what? Specifically, he said, Rocky's balls dropped. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> he worked construction and he had like a lot of colorful language. And I just was like, what does that mean? Why does it matter? And what does this mean for my future? And that's when I learned about the divide in what puberty experiences would be like for female-bodied people and male-bodied people. And in most parts of life, that really doesn't matter. If you're going to be a math professor, a musician, like these things, culture can matter based on how your experience is as a woman, but like you're not fundamentally better at it, um, at music because you have like a male body. But when it comes to sport, there is a 10 to 12% difference in performance among even the best in the world that just persists. And I was at the very beginning of learning that that, that gap was beginning to form. And then it had me wondering, okay, well, if I'm going to be in this girl's category, I have to be in my own category now. What does that look like? And how is that category treated? And what are those opportunities down the road? And it's vastly different. Definitely. And obviously, the way that men and women's bodies develop in puberty is is completely different, as as you said. And in the book, you talk about the balance, the fight between the body that will give you the best physical performance versus the body that is the most sexually attractive. And I think that's a fight that a lot of women can can relate to when they're growing up. So I wanted to ask you, especially as an athlete, how you navigated that or, or how you fought against that? Oh, well, I mean, I fought against it in healthy and in unhealthy ways, like a lot of female athletes do. The, the healthy way, I think, was determination and grit and staying the course and allowing my body to change so that I could get to the other side. Because what a lot of female athletes or most and the coaches don't know and the parents is that while puberty for the female body isn't immediately beneficial to sports performance, like when we're getting breasts and hips and our body fat percentages are changing and we have more softness to accommodate our menstrual cycle and fertility in those, especially those early fertile years, we see a performance plateau typically or even a short-term decline but what our body just needs time to adjust to it. And then we will go right back up the ramp of improvement on the other side. But when we view puberty as like a career ender or those body changes as a permanent quote problem, we teach girls that then they fear puberty um, or they view it as like, oh, well, I used to be good. Now I'm not. I'll go find another interest. 
uh, it changes the story of how a girl walks through the rest of her life often and um, into womanhood and, and it's completely unnecessary. So I think that what one thing that, that I did do was stay the course and allow my body to change. But then later in my career as an early pro, I started to buy into the idea that my body needed to be different. I actually compared myself to an online biography of um, Paula Radcliffe and saw that we were the same height, but she was 10 pounds lighter. And I got it in my head that if I wanted to be like Paula Radcliffe, who was significantly older than me with more training under her belt, I needed to lose 10 pounds. And so then I started to fight against my body and lose my menstrual cycle and kind of do more of the things that are very common among younger adolescent girls, trying to reverse time, freeze time, stop their period or stop their development, erase their curves uh, when they feel this pressure, especially for male coaches a lot of the time to look more like the male standard of leanness, which we equate with excellence. I think it's interesting what you say there about wanting to freeze time. Because one of the phrases in your book that stood out for me was you said that you actually got your period quite late when you're 16 or, or 17. And you said, a period was a rite of passage into womanhood and womanhood didn't stand for anything I wanted. And you can see why that that makes sense with everything you've said about how you knew you were going to be slower than, than the boys. But I think it's interesting uh, as you go on in the book, we realize that getting periods late or missing periods can actually be an issue both short and long term, can't it? Oh, for sure. It will be an issue. That's the thing is I thought of my period as yeah, like this sign, I was a woman, right? Um, once I got my period, I would be a woman. And I was like, oh God, but what does that mean? And what is, how are women treated and valued in society? And do I really want to go there? Uh, and if you just train really hard and don't quite eat enough, then you won't get your period. You also don't have, to, I viewed it as an inconvenience, this monthly thing I had to deal with that created mood shifts and logistical changes and mess. And, um, and then it's also stigmatized in our culture as something dirty or yucky. And it was something that I was like, in my little girl body, like, why would I want that? But that's because nobody was was researching then, which they are now a lot of it coming out of the UK, actually, they're like world leader, you guys are world leaders in this, that the menstrual cycle is far more than fertility, than this, you know, cusp into womanhood. And it's certainly way more important than we've been teaching female body people to believe. It is the a healthy menstrual cycle impacts our immune system, our mental health, our libido, our recovery rates, our pain tolerance. I mean, it's fundamental if we if we can view that cycle as not an inconvenience, but like a sign of our health, this gift that we can see, hey, things are operating. I'm adapting to training well. I'm eating enough because I am still getting my menstrual cycle on time then you can have confidence to continue to push and press and drive. And if that gets disturbed, we sh it should be setting off alarm bells. If you're not menstruating regularly, female athletes and their coaches and parents should be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, let's figure out what's going on here because you're not going to be replacing that bone mineral density. You're going to end up with stress fractures, tendon problems, get sick easier, and, and not have that same grit and pain tolerance that you had before. And, um, and that will help, I think, more girls think short-term and long-term about their menstrual cycle. It's tough to get young adolescent athletes to really think long-term. And the messaging used to be, hey, you're going to get osteoporosis when you're 45 if you ignore this lost period, or you're going to have trouble having kids in 15 years if you do want them. And like, what 20-year-old what is like, oh, well, that sounds like an emergency right now. <laughs> Very few. 
I think uh, you've mentioned a couple of times about about eating and you said chasing the fake Paula Radcliffe weight and things like that. And there is a big focus in this book on disordered eating and lots of quite harrowing stories of kind of coaches questioning your weight after you lost and uh, athletes pinching their fat and, and measuring the inches uh, and also the, the body dysmorphia from the revealing uniform that female athletes are required to wear. I want to talk about the uniform first. Are the clothes that professional female athletes or runners, are they performance related or is there some other reason they have to wear those tiny shorts and reveal their abs? No, I mean, let's be honest. Let's talk about male drive for a second. If there was a costume that female athletes were wearing that was truly faster, that would impact their performance, men would be wearing them too. And Kipchoge, I mean, you tell me that Kipchoge in trying to break the two-hour barrier in the marathon, that, that Nike and Kipchoge weren't trying to look under every single rock and stone for every single second they could get. And he would have been wearing little bun huggers if it truly was faster. So no, it's about aesthetic. And in the uniforms that we see, a lot of them still today, they're codified into rule books to show more skin to be tighter for the women's games is because when post 70s and 80s, when female athletes were finally starting to come out into the Olympics in large numbers, be on television, be in commercials, there was a fear in culture. It's well documented around the masculinization of females through sport. People were very worried about this. Sport was an arena for masculine aggression. It was a place where men proved their aggression and their masculinity. So when you stick women in those spaces, there was a fear of, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to make them gay, or or this is going to kind of destroy femininity. And the uniforms were an apologetic, in a way, a way of assuring the population and maybe even the performers that we can still be feminine and aggressive and strong. You know, I can throw this shot put across the field and I'm still, you know, whatever it was. And I did, I do think it served its purpose at the time, but um, it also comes with a price when you are a person who has to be put in this tiny uniform, when that is the signal that you are a professional. Now you have one more element to worry about that your male peers don't. And that is how does my butt look in these tiny little briefs? And if you want to wear a bathing suit, a tiny little bathing suit on the beach, that's totally fine, right? But to have an expectation be to wear skin showing super tight kit in front of an entire international television audience in order to prove you're a professional, that's just an unnecessary barrier that creates a lot of static um, and self-consciousness when you're trying to be excellent, which demands unselfconsciousness. And so I I think that we, it's definitely well beyond time for us to re-evaluate those uniform rules. I can just imagine having the, all those eyes on you as as a young female growing up. Your body's changing, and and everyone can can see your body. It's it's on show, isn't it? And and I think that goes back to the disordered eating, and that that will surely be one of the root causes. To give the listeners a sense of the problem that you talk about in the book, can you tell us how common the issue was? And maybe you could start by telling the story of of Kim Mortensen. Yeah, well, I do. I can say that 65% of collegiate athletes in the US are unhappy with their bodies. And this is across all sports. So this isn't just a running thing. And 90% of those uh, people who are unhappy have a desire. They think they need to lose weight. So 10% think they need to gain weight or do something different. But 90% think, think they need to lose it. And they think they need to lose an average of 13 and a half pounds. So we're talking about a huge gap between 
what their bodies look like and what they think they should look like. And so it's it's about um, external cultural expectations. Why do they think that their body is so wrong? Why do so many young women think their bodies need to change when maybe the problem is that the people telling them it needs to change need to readjust their idea of what an excellent female body looks like during adolescence? It should be softer. And if we aren't allowing that, if we are creating this pressure to look this in this very narrow window of leanness, when it's completely against natural biology, then the people doing that, the systems doing that are, the, are responsible for the eating disorders that result, for the mental health crises that result. Like they're creating a toxic environment with a completely unrealistic and damaging expectation. Kim Mortensen in my story was this high school um, athlete in California at a thousand oaks, someone three years older than me. So as a little scrawny freshman, I watched her. I was on the track with her when she broke the national record in the two mile, the 3,200 meters and just destroyed it. I think it was by like 18 seconds or something, this longstanding record. And she looked like me, like an undeveloped prepubescent girl with bony shoulders and her jersey kind of hung off of her. And my coach pointed out like, oh, you look just like her as if that is a reason to think, hey, you've got the same genes, like you might be able to also accomplish this one day. But underneath the surface, Kim spoke to the Los Angeles Times about it like a year or two later. Uh, she was malnourishing herself. She was, she was fighting her body's changes. She started out like a lot of athletes do, thinking about eating healthier and more disciplined but what was the aim Kim was trying to reach and why? Why was that the standard that she was reaching for? And why didn't anybody stop her? Why didn't anybody say, hey, this is completely against what physiology wants you to be doing right now? Or even just knowing that that's going to be a pressure in advance and creating a safe environment for girls to let their bodies change before that even begins. So there's a lot of things in that story that, but I, she sort of haunted me in my career because she set this standard that was almost impossible to reach for anyone else for many, many years, I think almost two more decades. And um, in the female sport, there's situations where, where records are on the books like that. And there's a story underneath that story of, of self-harm and problems that can last a lifetime. That legacy can last a lifetime. And it's a, a price that's too high to pay for any record. And meanwhile, there's pomp and circumstance and celebrations and scholarships and all kinds of things that, that result from that self-harm, right? And the system rewards it. So the systems reward females mimicking male body standards during an age when it's extremely damaging. And that's because sport, as we know, it was built around the 13 to 22-year-old male body, which improves pretty linearly with puberty. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm just thinking about the parents and, and coaches and athletes listening listening to this or anyone involved with someone who might be linked to an eating disorder. You sort of had to pick someone to copy and that was how you figured out how to eat right. And it seemed like there was very little guidance around, very little policy. So what would your message be to those people listening to... I don't know, have uh, maybe forge a safer path through this world of sport? Yeah, well, I think anybody who has any influence on the life of a developing female athlete should read my book. And I'm not just saying that as a person who wrote the book, like the point of the book is to give people like a look in not just into the women's locker room or the girls locker room, but into the mind of the female athletes in that locker room, so that you can you can provide the safe environment, the counter forces to help them get through everything they're facing. It's critical. And these are things that are uncomfortable to talk about. So they aren't spoken. So many of these things are not spoken about. But what, one thing that you can do is just understand that female puberty is different, that most female bodies should be getting softer. It's not because they're eating too much ice cream or cookies. That's what people tend to do. Parents and coaches, they'll start trying to control the diets of these developing female athletes because they view any kind of softness or the inability to see the spaces between their abdominal muscles when you could, when they were children, now you can't. And they think that means something's going wrong and the athlete needs to change behavior. And that is not what's going on. They are completely perfect and right on time. A female athlete should have space in their diet for cookies and ice cream, and so should a male athlete. That is not the problem. There is no problem. And so just support them through those changes. Support them with education about nutrition for sport, certainly, but not towards the name of changing what your body looks like, not towards the name of losing weight. Do not measure the body fat of young athletes going through adolescence. It's, it's harmful and not useful. It'd be like taking detailed measurements of a 13-year-old boy's voice who wants to be a singer right in the midst of vocal changes. It's asinine and, and none of the information is useful. And so just don't do it. Just let them develop, like foster their love of sport, 
tell them that they can improve in a hundred different ways besides performance while they're going through these changes. They can improve strategically, um, nutritionally. They can improve as teammates. They can improve like so many things. And then once they get through those couple of years, they're, they're going to start just rocketing into their strongest self now that they're in their woman body. That is their most powerful body. The woman body is the body that holds records and ends up with medals around their neck at the Olympics, not child bodies. And when you, you got your women body, you, you turned pro and, and you had to get a sponsorship deal. And I feel like this is where the inequalities are given a monetary value. So where you're living actually depends on them. You experienced Nike's policy of dramatically cutting pay during pregnancy, uh, something they've now changed after being called out by several athletes, including um, seven-time Olympic champion Alison Felix. But it wasn't just the pregnancy part, was it? Tell us about the gender inequalities you experienced in the sponsorship deals. Well, right away, it became apparent that what you looked like mattered. Um, with, within this, like the world of professional sport, marketability is important. And it ties into the women athletes being on display in tiny uniforms. Most of the people, the vast majority in charge of athletic marketing budgets are men. Most of them are straight white men. Um, and they have persisted uh, in passing down these ideas from the 80s and 90s, which is that female athletes are for the male viewer. If we need to be a, a thing to be viewed and appreciated. We, we don't get to just exist like male athletes do um, based on what we can achieve and how we play. And um, it's not to say that attractive male athletes aren't also rewarded financially at times. That does happen. But the degree to which it happens is dramatically different. And the ways that we are presented in advertisements is dramatically different. And so there's a section in my book when I'm going pro and I'm having these conversations, I'm trying to advocate for myself instead of have an agent. Um, and I'm hearing directly the things that they value. And because I'm a, you know, a, a woman, I'm a white woman, I have blonde hair, blue eyes. I looked like the standard at the time that was associated with Western standards of beauty. I wasn't Maria Sharapova beautiful, but I was like, quote, cute enough where I was going to get invested in. I was fast and cute. And therefore I would get a contract that was going to be able to keep me alive. And that I just found that to be really disgusting. <laughs> At the time, I didn't think of it that way too much because I was like, whoo, this is like a just trying to survive in this industry. Thank goodness I have this thing going for me that they like. But as I got older and I saw how many talented female athletes just never even got a chance to go pro because someone didn't, didn't view them as, quote, marketable. And they could have been the next Olympic champion, really. Like you just don't know. And those forces shouldn't be at play the way they are in women's sports. We are not here for men to look at anymore. So like, if you want to look cool, go for it. But like, we are here to play and we are here to perform and have fun and inspire the next generation. I love how in the book you, you fought against that in certain instances, there was a campaign, wasn't there a Nike ad campaign where they asked you to, to do it naked? I loved your response. Yeah, there was this campaign. And um, when they sent me the look and feel, it was a picture from a previous Nike campaign of Brandy Chastain bent over a soccer ball. Um, naked. And this campaign was going to be for the first women's specific shoe built on women's specific biomechanical research. And so I could see where they were going with it. Hey, let's feature the shoe, but otherwise you'll have no clothes on. 
Um, and it was, it was tough because that was my first break. That was the first time this huge global company was like, we want to feature you. You are, you're going to be the face of this campaign. And that can have massive implications on my future salary, on other opportunities. And so to say no to that or to challenge the idea was risky. But I also had studied these things. I, I understood the cultural impacts of how women are featured in media by then. And I knew I didn't want to be yet another female athlete in a poster on the wall of young girls saying, this is what success looks like. Success means you're going to get to be naked in an ad one day, that you're still going to be viewed as attractive and strong by the people that quote matter. Right. And like, and that's really what it was. And so I said, no. And I said that I wanted to do it differently. And um, to my surprise, they were perfectly willing to change it. There was, there were like no women in the room. So they were doing their best, but this is the problem when you'd have no diversity in rooms, right? Like you really don't end up with the best ideas. And so we ended up working together to create a campaign where I did have clothes on and I was not standing in a vulnerable position. I was standing strong with my arms crossed, staring right into the camera. I wasn't smiling. Um, and the voice of the advertisement was in my voice and I was, I was telling them what to do, not having it be in Nike's voice. And I think it turned out, well, I know it turned out to be a really powerful um, industry recognized advertisement campaign for that reason. And thinking about solutions to all the issues, there's a lot of issues raised. You mentioned the concern you had at the time for the famous runner, Mary Kane, who was nicknamed the fastest girl in America until she joined Nike. Um, Kane has actually since sued Nike for alleged abuse. She talks of self-harm, suicidal thoughts, eating disorders. And in a 2019 New York Times opinion piece, she said that part of the solution is that we need more women in power. So she said, part of me wonders if I'd worked with more female psychologists, nutritionists, and even coaches, I wonder where I'd be today. So I wanted to ask you about that, whether you agree with, with Mary on that, but I suppose it's also about getting women all types of women, you know, black women, women from ethnic minorities. It go it goes beyond that, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's definitely a huge problem when it comes to representation and coaching and in sports in general. Like like I said, those sports marketing rooms of who's spending the money, who's deciding who's marketable, who is really dictating who we're gonna see on television. These are mostly straight white men still to this day. Um, and so coaches similarly, but and I would say Mary's the best person to speak about Mary's experience, but my take on women in coaching and women in these positions is that is a band-aid solution and it doesn't even guarantee it'll stop the bleeding. Um, women are just as capable of creating harm as men. The only difference they've got going for them culturally is that they may have gone through something similar in their body. And so they will have um, that to go on. Like they know what it's like to menstruate, for example, or to go through female puberty. But that doesn't mean they're going to respond to the menstrual cycle and female puberty in a way that's nurturing because they've gone through a system and they, you know, we all perpetuate the systems we grow up in for the most part. So I think that, yeah, you can't rely on like a little bit of social, gendered socialization and a shared menstrual experience to guarantee the health and safety of female athletes. The real solution is that every single person who works with female bodied people in sport needs to be educated. I think there should be a mandatory coaching requirement that you understand female puberty, the normal progression of the female athlete body in sport on the timeline of adolescence, and you've been tested on it. You know it, and you can speak clearly to athletes about it. You can say the word 
period, without using euphemisms or without making a funny face. You can have emotional intelligence to talk about feelings and emotions and fears and sport. We can't be relying on hiring assistant female coaches who are kept in a low paying position and be like, no, you're going to do all the emotional labor and you're going to talk about periods and I'll be over here as the male coach. And I don't really talk about that stuff, but here I am over here writing the workouts and getting paid more etc. That's not a solution, but that's what we're currently doing. I guess that's sort of about taking the onus off women as well, because a lot of your book is about women aren't the problem. You know, that I think that's that's a key message that I took away. Women need to realize that they're not the problem. And also maybe they then they don't need to be relied on to be the solution as well. Oh, yeah. The idea that it's women that need to come in here and fix this is completely absurd. <laughs> like, we don't. We Like, if you are a person involved in sport and you have any power in this thing, you're responsible no matter what your gender is for making it better. And so that's something we all need to do. And I think about this too with a lot of equity issues, right? We can't leave it up to the group experiencing the pain and harm to fix the thing. Like, we are a giant group of people in humanity. And if any section of our group is struggling, we will all struggle. We will all be held back by that. We all gain from elevating and making sure each of these sections of our population are able to thrive. And I think that that's just like, I think I understand why men have a hard times, why there are barriers to standing up and really taking a stand for female specific issues. Like I get it. You don't, and you may even get smacked down by some feminists for doing that. Like, Hey, why are you speaking up? Whatever. Same thing as like a white person speaking up about racism. Like, but overall you still need to stand up. You need to do it. We all, we need every single person off the bench working together on this. You spoke earlier about what success looks like. And I think your perspective on success and also the depiction of the relationship between pain and success fascinates me. The, the quest to make the Olympics is a key current that goes through the book and you came very close. But now as a coach, you're challenging what success looks like. You say success is an empowered athlete, not just a winning athlete. So I'm wondering what's your advice to athletes or people who are kind of trying to square this more empowered approach with the results tables that they'll face day in, day out? Well, I don't believe that being healthy and being holistic and being successful are at odds with each other. I think that um, traditionally in women's sports space, there have been arguments in the past where we're pitted against each other into two camps. We we need to be able to be as competitive as men and all these things exactly the way they have it. And then this other group that's like, no, we need to take care of health. And it's the competitive environment that's to blame. Um, Does the competitive environment make things harder to be healthy and holistic? Yeah, for sure. But that's for everybody, not just women. And I did this through my coaching. I had successful athletes who were also holistically healthy. But I think that as a culture, we have to kind of look at ourselves too and go, why are we making it seem like the Olympics is the only thing that matters? And why are we accepting any price to the body of these athletes and the minds of these athletes for these performances? Uh, Because we're part of the problem if we're doing that. If we view these medals and these records as so supreme, so much more important than any other part of sport, which by the way, is not part of the Olympic creed and the the whole purpose of the Olympics to begin with. So we have taken it to this other level because it's easier to cover it in journalism. It's easier to create drama, but it's causing harm. We also have lots of research now that shows that these athletes after an Olympics, they put their whole lives 
on the back burner. They pay these enormous physical and mental tolls. They achieve the thing that we all tell them is the most valuable thing. And then on the other side, they experience crippling depression, difficulty transitioning back into normal life, difficulty getting jobs, finding happiness. The toll is real. And why? So we can like have our moment while we're eating our chips on the sofa, cheering on sport. Like, let's just get a little bit of perspective here. The point of sport is, well, what is the point of sport? (laughs) People will say it's winning. It's not. Um, It's much more than that. It's a life-changing arena, right? It's a life-changing place to change how you view yourself, to have lifelong health, to make friends, to make community. That's what it is. Definitely. And and you speak there about the next chapter for athletes when, when they retire and, and moving on. I wanted to ask you, when when people have read this book, what would you like them to kind of go on and do? If, what's the what's the next step? So first of all, what, what's the next step for you after after writing this book? But but also for people reading it, what next step would you like them to take? Well, I think reading it for sure is different than reading, like hearing an interview about it in a synopsis, because you will go through the whole sports system in my shoes, which brings a pulse to these issues in a way that will keep you motivated and it will empower you to look for solutions that are specific to your community and your life. Um, and so I, it's like a thousand little changes are going to make a difference. We don't. We also could use some big ones, right? Like we need to change uniform rules. We need to uh, create official policies in schools to help girls with eating disorders and women with eating disorders get help as soon as they can so they can make a full recovery. We need to prevent these disorders in the first place. But I think the biggest thing is just a consciousness shift. The female bodies are different. I'm going to keep beating that drum all year. Female bodies are different. We have different needs. This is an equity conversation, not an equality conversation, which are the kinds of conversations of the future that we really need to be having more of. And it's time in women's sports. And just view, I want it to help people view themselves and a female athlete in their life differently, just fundamentally differently. And if they're looking at them differently like that with, with creating space and safety around body changes, um, if they're looking inside themselves and going, how am I perpetuating a negative relationship with food and body in my community, in my running group, in my home, do that work in yourself. And if we can all do a little bit of that, things will change. Things will things will change quite a bit. We can also hold coaches responsible. There's things like that. You can like give this book to a coach, give it to a trainer, give it to the um, the like female health specialists that see athletes, and just spread the word. I think that's a brilliant note to end on, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. That was Lauren Fleshman, author of Good for a Girl: My Life Running in a Man's World, which is available now. I've been Sophie Penny. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Thanks for joining us.